What is the first reaction you have when you realize you're late to something? Maybe it's the tight feeling in your stomach, or the tunnel vision that sets in, or maybe the sudden realization that someone is going to kill you. Regardless of the consequences, you most likely arrive at your destination, although rather late. However, what would happen if you never showed up? Would people start to worry? Call your phone? Maybe even start searching for you? The better question, would you even be found? Welcome to Lost and Found. We don't know anything about anything, actually, in this case. There's very little that is actually known about the Jody Hoosentruth disappearance. Oh, the flowers and the teddy bears and the love notes didn't work. So I go to the next level and I'm going to start to threaten them, hurt them, and that will make them do what I want them to. I just feel like it's part of the job. You need to know that there are a lot of people who know you and you have to be on your guard. From B-Runner Studios and KBVU 97.5 The Edge, because of what they see on TV, and everything gets solved in an hour, they have unrealistic expectations of what an actual person, an actual licensed private investigator can do. This is Lost and Found. I'm your host, Tyler Bruner. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Lost and Found, an investigative podcast where we try to decipher the hidden clues of investigations to see if the lost could be found today. In this inaugural episode, I will introduce to you the very fabric of what this podcast is all about, investigations. We have all seen at least an episode, or parts of an episode, of a popular crime show where the investigators plug in a few numbers and find their suspect within half an hour. In reality, this is not the case, not by a long shot. Criminal investigations take months, even years to solve. And sometimes the wrong person is arrested, DNA is lost, or the case just doesn't have any new leads and is dropped entirely. So how do we know the police are doing a good job? How has social media changed investigations? What about cold cases? Can they be solved today? These are all great questions, and they will be answered in due time. But we will begin today with one type of investigation that continues to draw attention from around the nation. Cold cases. Cold cases are a criminal investigation that is unsolved, but remains open for new information to appear. Since the 1960s, around 200,000 murders have gone unsolved, according to National Public Radio. Podcasters all around the nation have attempted to solve these old and cold cases, and some have had success. Now, we would love to solve a cold case here on the podcast, but time is limited. Instead, we are conducting a thought experiment, one that is inclusive of all the technological and investigative changes in the past 20 years. This allows us to be critical and analytical of investigations throughout the years and see what has changed for the better and what hasn't changed at all. So 
With all of this in mind, let's begin our journey together with a cold case many are familiar with in my home state, and how this case provides an interesting look into the world of investigations. It's 4 a.m. on June 27, 1995, a regular Tuesday morning in the Midwestern state of Iowa. The crickets singing their tunes, the birds just waking up, and one news anchor is late for work. Without hesitation, she rushes out the door to her car in a nearby parking lot. But... She never arrives to her morning shift. In fact, she never shows up anywhere. Not to work, not her apartment, nowhere. And today, 24 years after this horrible incident happened, our world has advanced technologically and scientifically to the point where committing a crime is almost impossible. So, what could have happened if this case happened today? Could it be solved? It's one guy. It's one eyewitness testimony. Was there a white van? What time was it? What direction was it facing? Was the white? It's been suggested to me by people who are, live in that area that there was always across the street or down the block there was always a uh, a plumbing company that had a white van always constantly parked in that driveway. Did Randy mistake that white van for the white van? I just talked to somebody on the phone who lived in the house across the street. It's probably. 50 yards from Jody's door, 75 yards from Jody's door, who said the van was there. She rolled over in bed and saw the white van there, but not in the driveway. It was parked alongside the street. So we don't know anything about anything, actually, in this case. There's very little that is actually known about the Jody Hoosentruth disappearance. Friends, this is Scott Fuller. Yeah, my name's Scott Fuller. I'm a professional radio broadcaster, uh, journalist of the last 15 years of different mediums, and I produce about Jody's case, I produced a season of the Frozen Truth podcast. In the past year, Scott has continued to dedicate months to this case, which you now know as the Jody Hoosentruth disappearance. Jody was young, beautiful, and talented on the camera. And on that fateful June morning, Jody, as many have assumed, was abducted and has never been seen since. And I say assume because we really don't know what happened. Scott dedicated an entire season of his podcast, Frozen Truth, to this specific case and unearthed some interesting findings. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. In some ways, to use your analogy, you're not even sure what the puzzle is supposed to be. You're not even sure what board game you're playing in, in some ways with this case. The local knowledge of a case right after somebody is murdered or somebody goes missing, the longer that case goes unsolved, the more entrenched in their initial suspicions the local community becomes. It's actually kind of interesting to observe. And after a certain period of time of three or six months, the news coverage moves on and the book kind of closes and the local community kind of solidifies their perception of, I have to, as a human being, explain this. I don't like un unsolved mysteries. I don't like unanswered questions just as a person. I'm not comfortable with that. So collectively, we kind of say, well, 
it's it's in this case John Van Sice because he was the most publicized suspect at that case. It's just that the Mason City Police can't prove it yet, and you move on with your life. I think we'd like to think, if you've never experienced something like this, and I have not personally, I think we like to think that, oh, I'll remember that forever, and I'll, I'd be a great witness for the police. But you're coming out of a dead sleep probably 25 years ago, and there's also this natural inclination that people have to not want to get involved in, in things like that, even back then. And also, I mean, to a lesser extent, if witnessing or even just hearing what went on that night and then finding out what you were later, what you were listening to, that might be traumatic enough for your brain to try to put it away mm. and, and, and remove it from your recollection. Scott and I have shared our thoughts on this case, and we will hear more from him later on. But for now, we must move on. Jody's case is interesting and worthy of many more podcasts and TV specials. Don't get me wrong. However, our time will be spent on aspects of this case rather than the case itself. I'm talking about technology, social media, stalkers, and mass media, and how these have affected the world of investigation in the past 24 years. Our first aspect we will focus on is how this case has been described as a missing persons case. As a cop, I'd like to see every newborn child tagged with DNA and put into a database because as a cop, you want the easy way out. And so if you have something, you just want the database there. Uh, but aside from that, I, you know, I think people's rights have to be adhered to. Friends, this is Mark Prosser. My name is Mark Prosser, and I'm the Public Safety Director and Chief of Police for the City of Storm Lake. Mark has been a part of the police force for over 40 years and has an array of knowledge on investigations and criminal cases in general. When it came to missing persons cases, he revealed what the reality is for many of the missing persons cases around the nation. In the majority of missing person cases, even today, they're just gone. I mean, I mean, they come back. They, they were mad, they left, they, there was a cross up in communications. They really weren't missing per se, uh, and, and they show back up. Or in the, even in the case of, of a uh, adolescent or, or teenager, it was a runaway case versus a snatching case, which is the majority even today of what missing person cases are. They're runaway cases. They're not stranger abductions or even abductions from people known to them. So quite often they come home. Uh, so that was the theory behind it. Um, and so they were really not prioritized unless you saw direct evidence there was you know, a break-in at, at a house or, or blood or other types of evidence that looked like a physical struggle, um, missing persons weren't a big deal. They were downplayed until 24 hours later, and then you started working on them because you knew 99 out of 100 were going to show back up. And, and so ultimately and unfortunately, that 1% that were bona fide abductions or, or people that were in peril, um, the investigation suffered uh, because it just wasn't prioritized. But over time, you've learned that you've got that golden hour, the golden 24 hours, um, and that the you know, the more time goes on, the less chance uh, you have of, at minimum, finding that person unharmed. This, sadly, was reality back in the 80s and 90s. Adult runaways simply did not have enough attention put their way. So, in the case of a real kidnapping or homicide, 
a case might not get the attention it needed if the crime scene was spotless. Of course, in today's world filled with technology and scientific advancements, this kind of putting aside would not happen. According to the National Crime Information Center, in 2017, around 650,000 individuals were considered missing or kidnapped. More specifically, 8,500 adults aged 21 and older were kidnapped involuntarily, 32,000 individuals who were kidnapped had their physical safety in danger, and, in the context of our case today, around 60,000 females aged 21 and older were reported missing in 2017. But Mark shared a chilling fact about missing persons investigations in the past that might shock us today. What we've learned and studies coming out of the 70s and 80s is that the first 24 hours is critical. We didn't necessarily know that back then. Uh, it's a lot of studies and going back and looking at old case files to determine that, you know, uh, if you don't find someone in the first 24 hours, uh, the, that golden 24 hours, that uh, a whole different time clock starts to click as to their to your ability to find them and their survivability of being found, especially with the abduction of children. Uh, and so that, that was kind of not known to us back in those days. It's been since then that research has become more, so much more efficient and data collection has become so much more efficient. But in the first 24 hours, you know, quite often, back what I call in the day, in the 70s and 80s, unless it was a child, if it was an adult, you wouldn't even do an investigation until they were gone for 24 hours. Now. If you saw that a potential crime was committed, if there was evidence that someone was physically abducted and, and there was a physical struggle, absolutely you would launch an investigation. But if, if I just went missing, they would wait 24 hours before they even took a report. Considering the facts the public knows, we could classify the Jody Hoosentrude disappearance as a missing persons case. Yet, where we run into some trouble is labeling it as such and calling it a day. Yes, she is physically missing, but is it because of a homicide? A kidnapping? We just don't know. And the big reason why we don't know and why it's so hard to find the answers today is because of the lack of a body. That the biggest difficulty when you don't have a no body case, when you have a no body case, is not having the body, which seems obvious. But when you start to parse through what you lack when you don't have a body, it really becomes crystal clear how challenging that is. If you don't have a body, you don't know where the murder happened. You can make some presumptions here, possibly in the home, possibly in a car, possibly somewhere else. But you don't know because you don't have a dead body that ended up in a location. Even if a body has been moved to that location, you still have some information because you have a body. When you don't have a body, you don't have any guess as to the time of death. Friends, this is Tad DeBias. Sure, my name's Tad DeBias, and I'm known as the Nobody Guy, and that's because I uh, help police and prosecutors investigate and prosecute nobody murder cases, that is, cases where the victim has not been found. Tad has the unique title of the Nobody Guy, a title he gave himself because of his interest and expertise in nobody murder investigations. So when I was with the U.S. Attorney's Office, a colleague of mine was leaving the homicide section 
and he gave me um, a no-body murder investigation, a case that had just the woman had just gone missing, and the family believed that she had actually been murdered. So because I was very interested in homicide cases, I was really interested in no-body murder cases. And when I started researching them in D.C., surprisingly, I found that there had only ever been one other no-body murder case in D.C. that had ever gone to trial, which is surprising because D.C. actually had a very high um, homicide rate, particularly um, versus other uh, large cities in the country and really in the country as a whole. So it was shocking to me that there had never been a, a no-body case. So when I was trying to find the case law in D.C., there was virtually no case law and no body cases. So I decided to look kind of across the country. And I started with a memo that a colleague of mine had written when he was researching the topic because he had a no body case that ended up not going to trial. And he had probably 50 or 60 cases collected there. So once I started collecting those cases, ultimately I tried and got a conviction in my no body case. I just became very interested because I saw that there was no kind of central collection point for this information. So I ended up building a table and then putting it uh, on the internet anonymously because I didn't want to have to jump through a bunch of hoops mm. with the department. So for a few years, it was just anonymous. And that's when I came up with the nobody guy. And then once I left the department of justice, I ended up publishing it on my own and saying, this is who I was. And then just kind of snowballed from there. I started getting calls from reporters and police and prosecutors. And I started conducting training for police and prosecutors on how to try these cases, how to investigate these cases. And then ultimately published a book that came out in the fall of 2014. His expertise would lend a helping hand into what we are trying to answer. Without a body and little physical evidence, how does a case like this get solved? Well, most nobody cases I find are solved through one of three, what I'll call quantums of evidence. That first one is something that you just mentioned, Tyler, and that's forensic evidence. It can be DNA, it can be hair, it can be fiber, it can be other forensic evidence such as cell tower information or cell phone information, location information of where a cell phone was. That's the number one way that today these cases are generally um, solved. The second one is what I call confession to friends and family, where the defendant says something about it. It may not be, I committed the murder, but it can be something damning. It can be something that is inconsistent with what he said to other people. The third quantum of evidence is what's called confession to the police. Many times, astonishingly, people do confess to committing murders, and so sometimes to police, you'll have that you know, type of confession. And the reason these are the main three quantums of evidence is that in a no-body case, you typically don't have an eyewitness. And that's partially because in over 50% of the cases, they are cases where the two people are in a relationship with one another, husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, ex-boyfriend and girlfriend, parent and child. And because of the way these relationships are, you typically don't have a third party there observing when the event that kicks off the murder um, actually occurs. So in no-body cases, you classically have those three types of evidence in a case that leads to a successful conviction. Obviously, in cases that aren't successfully prosecuted, you may not have any of those um, things. 
Tad has helped to lead the way on how to properly investigate no-body cases around the country. To this day, he is hopeful that these old and cold cases will be solved. Absolutely. I mean, there have been, there's a famous case um, up near me in Virginia called the Lion Sisters who disappeared from a shopping mall. And that was solved 40, almost 45 years later after it happened. Um, so these, you know, these types of Aton Pates in New York, same thing, 40 plus years later, um, these cases can be solved. They take time, they take tenacity, and they take some um, investigative luck. But there's no doubt that no case is too old to be solved. Cold cases, in a strange way, grasp our attention due to the nature of the unknown. We are naturally curious about these oddities that we can't quite seem to understand or solve. And through this curiosity, we look for answers. But what happens when those answers are false or misleading? Or even the people around you start to accept those misleading facts as the truth. Next time on Lost and Found. Imagine what this man's life has become because of something that he, he didn't do. I mean, they, they were looking at other people, but mm -hmm. not seriously at the outset. And when you lose time like that, that's very valuable time yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, really being able to talk to other people. Hello once again, everyone. This is Tyler. You've been hearing my voice all episode long, but I just wanted to take some time to thank you for listening to the podcast. This podcast is a joint production from KBVU 97.5 The Edge and my professional media account, B-Runner Studios. If you would like to listen to Scott Fuller's podcast, Frozen Truth, see what no body case Tad Tobias has added to his list or any of the sources used in this episode, check the description below. Episode 2 will be coming out in about two weeks, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And, as always, stay tuned. There is more to come. <laughs>